Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects, Dice's podcast where we dig into topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kolakowski, and I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain technologists in a historically tight market, and much more. Our next guest is Josh Millett who's founder and CEO of Criteria, which builds assessments and tools so that organizations can make objective, evidence-based talent decisions. When done right, good assessments should drive great hiring outcomes while reducing bias. But how do you create a truly objective assessment? How can companies adjust their hiring processes to boost hiring successes and retention while reducing turnover? Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. So let's tune in. One thing that comes up again and again when talking to tech pros and talking to managers and so on is this need for truly objective assessments. Um, and it seems sometimes like, you know, obviously there's tests, there, there's hard testing, there's technical interviews and so on. But the actual definition of an objective assessment seems to elude some people. But, you know, as part of your as part of criteria, as part of your business, you lean into this idea really heavily. And I kind of wanted to break it down and kind of almost take a top view, like what is an objective assessment? How do you get there? How do you design for it? Because it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and criteria is really all about helping our customers make more objective uh, talent decisions and specifically around hiring. So it's something we think about every day. Um, I think for us, yeah, it will vary a little bit from company to company, but I think there's some commonalities that that overlay all companies in terms of what we mean when we talk about like making objective talent decisions, making objective hiring decisions. I think one of the ways we like to define it is using a structured and rigorous process based on job-related things, right? So um, that can be agreed on skills or competencies, or in the case of a software engineer, languages, um, you know, whatever it might be that are really clearly linked to the job. Um, and so, th- so it really starts with that, having a, you know, having the hiring group or the hiring manager and the recruiter aligned around um, what the job requirements are and then focusing on those in an uh, objective way as, as possible. And for us, that also means like as, as much as possible doing things and, and looking at things that are quantifiable, right? Um, so assessments are obviously one way to do that, but there's lots of other ways as well. And, um, and so that's why we like to describe being objective as, as really um, taking like an evidence-based approach, almost like, like a scientist would take, right? Um, and, and so what that means for us is using data and using quantifiable inputs to predict quantifiable outputs, right? Um, so you want to make sure that you're doing things that are predictive of the outcomes you want. You know, for a developer, it would be, you know, writing, writing great code. For a, for a salesperson, it might be selling a lot, right? Um, and so I think for us, that's that's a really important thing. And I, I might use one example, um, which is a kind of assessment, I would argue, although not not the type that a lot of um, a lot of people come to us for, although it's an area we're really interested in pursuing is is interviews. Right. Um, being objective in an interview um, for us means taking like a structured interview approach. Right. Um, and a lot of companies kind of now know that, yeah, the research shows that structured interviews are better and they don't they don't introduce unconscious bias, all that sort of stuff. Um, but they don't really know how to do them. Right. So so for us, like doing structured interviews as opposed to just unstructured interviews, which are a much, much weaker signal, is about having agreement on you know the core questions you want to ask, hopefully having those questions linked again to job related things like work activities or, or competencies that are needed. 
and then scoring them, you know, scoring them in a rigorous way. So for example, if you go into an interview with a software developer and you've agreed on, okay, these four things are important for the role and they're all equally important, we're going to give them all five points. And so we'll get to a total score out of 20. And, and what that really does is prevent one really great quality or one really bad quality from sort of overriding the interview, right? And so, um, and hopefully the last step is that the people, let's say it's a panel interview of three or four people, hopefully they independently score the interview before like comparing notes, right? Because yeah. that's an area where like groupthink can really set in and kind of sometimes the strongest voice in the room in terms of the the panel can sort of sway other people in a way that um, weakens the signal, right? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. One thing that whenever I'm talking to tech professionals kind of comes up again and again is that when they have structured interviews, technical interviews with technical managers, often the people who they'll be reporting to directly, that manager or interviewer understands the nature of the job and the technology. And even if they don't give the correct answer to a technical question, they they can sort of, they know the thought process. They can say, okay, you didn't get this answer, but I like how you're thinking through these. And so therefore, I think you'll be a good fit. But with tech professionals, the issue that kind of crops up again and again, though, is that especially during the initial interview stages and especially at big companies, you'll have recruiters and hiring managers who aren't, you know, obviously they're very skilled from an HR perspective or an interviewing perspective, but they don't have that technical background. And so you have these professionals who obviously feel very angry because they feel that if they had interviewed someone with a technical background who understood it during the structured interview, they would have gotten through it. Um, what you're proposing here, does that... Does that, I mean, the, can it allow somebody who's a recruiter or so on who maybe doesn't have the same technical knowledge as the candidate to kind of overcome that lack of knowledge and give like a solid evaluation? I'm just, I'm curious on a tactical yeah. level, like the structure of that, like how that would work. That's right. I think, so in that scenario where we're, we're talking about software developers, for example, or, or more technical positions, I think the it's the format of the structured interview that like drives a better result, right? So the content might be totally different, right? Where maybe a top of funnel um, interview um, wouldn't go too deep on the technical skills, right? And and a later stage interview might be sort of a virtual whiteboard or you know um, use giving coding challenges or, or whatever. So I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that regardless of the content in the interview, which will differ, you know depending on the stage of the funnel, who the interviewer is. Um, and that can certainly be a, a source of frustration if you're, if you're talking to an interview who has no technical capacity, right? That, yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's a pretty common claim, complaint for sure. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that's important is whatever the content is that you're focusing on in an interview, using that structured framework, uh, almost independent of content delivers a better result, right? So if a, if a non-technical interviewer is sort of assessing more critical thinking or problem solving in a generic way and not in a specific, you know, uh, how well do you know Python way, um, then using a framework where you say, okay, these are the things that are important. These are the um, traits and skills that drive success in the role. Um, and scoring them rigorously always delivers a better result, almost independent of, of, of the content. Um, it's also a way, like there's all this research that shows that, um, you know, that like 30 to 40% of the time in an interview, the interviewer has made up their mind, like in the first five minutes of the interview. Yeah. And that's a case where if we think about whatever the structure of the interview, right, there's often 
very little of substance that happens in the first five minutes, right? You're you're sort of potentially making small talk, you know, kind of uh, doing icebreakers. And yet um, what all the research shows is that, um, you know, people are, are very swayed by their first impressions and then they become anchored around that impression. Um, and, uh, and, and then are, it's very difficult in the last 25 or 55 minutes to sort of move off that initial impression, even if you sort of consciously know it, it shouldn't matter that much. And actually the origin story of Criteria is, is very connected to that research because hmm. I, I remember I, I first had the idea for Criteria when I was, uh, I just sold my first startup and I was in, um, uh, somehow I, I got put in a role that I had a role in hiring, which I was totally unqualified for at the time. And um, and I remember sitting in this one interview and looking up at the clock on the wall and it was like seven minutes into the hour. And and for me, it was clear, like mutually, it was not a fit at that point. And I, and I thought, man, there's um, there's got to be, uh, you know, a better way to do this, more data driven way to, to like avoid these mismatched interviews. Um, so I guess even I was was guilty of, you know, that sort of five minute uh, decision process that, uh, that that probably isn't ideal. Well, it, it seems that there's a lot of I don't I hesitate to use the word drama, but in terms of when you look at kind of the the overarching the decades long history of especially in tech job interviewing, I mean, there's always you know there, there's so much of a struggle to get to kind of where you are to try to kind of get to this this objective scientific approach to it. What do you think? I mean, and, and it's almost because you know, and especially in tech, like there's a lot of very objectively minded scientific people, and yet you know this process has taken a while to get to this point. Why do you think there's been that struggle? I mean, why has there been so much drama for companies when it comes to hiring like this? Because it seems like a no, no yeah. brainer for want of a better term. I, I know. I, I I often ask that question myself because we're launching this structured interviewing product. And I think there's pretty widespread now knowledge that like, okay, this is a better way to do things rather than going in there and just, you know, firing away. Um, and, and so I think there's like more awareness that that approach is better. So like, why are so few companies doing it? That, that's a question that I ask a lot. Um, I think, you know, like folks like the, the Google team, right, they've been taking a structured approach to interviews for a long time. And, um, and some of the best employers that have like in-house uh, organizational psychologists are really, you know, trying to do this at scale. But I think that the answer to your question, Nick, is like, I think there's a perception, which is often actually true, that it feels inorganic and stiff, like to do like a scripted interview, you know? Um, and so it, it, it feels like not a warm and fuzzy, like uh, experience for the candidate. And I think that's a, behind a lot of the reticence about adopting it. Um, and for me, um, you know, I think like the, the the sort of educational part for us is telling people that it doesn't have to be that way. A, like, like I think having a common set of core questions doesn't mean that you can't be human. It doesn't mean that you can't like ask follow up questions or, or ask other questions that are maybe unique to that person's background. It just means you have a common set of core questions that you ask in, in the same sequence to, to every person. And I actually think um, during COVID, there's there's kind of been an opportunity to encourage this behavior more because I think like doing a structured interview over video, like whether you're doing, you know, your, your first interviews over teams or over zoom, whatever. Um, I think it's easier and maybe it feels a little less awkward to do a structured interview. You know, if I'm, if I'm seeing you on my screen and, and, you know, I have a panel embedded in, in teams or in zoom or whatever, where I see the next question and I'm able to score and take notes. 
um, it, it feels like a little bit like, oh, of course, that's what you do when you're at your computer. You're, you know, you're interacting with with your computer as well as the person. Whereas if you're in across a table from someone, it really feels maybe a little bit more um, stiff and awkward at times when you're when you're doing that, it, almost like you're reading off a script and, and things like that. So I think actually doing structured interviews through video is actually kind of a cool medium to maybe make it a little less weird <laughs> and a little yeah. less um, inorganic. So, so I think like the the first generation of our live interviewing product that that we're releasing shortly is is kind of over over video, right? Having that capability. That makes me curious. I mean, obviously, like as you said, during COVID, everybody was doing video interviews, and then when offices started opening back up, there just as obviously this transition back to you know across the table in person interviewing, but. Have you been seeing, I mean, even for companies where the offices are open again, are, are they sticking with video interviewing or is, I mean, is, is this like going to be a long-term trend? I mean, how is, how yeah. is that going? Yeah. And, and, you know, our customer base is pretty diverse. So we're, I think, you know, I think tech is like 9% of the economy. It's 10% of our customer base. So, yeah, you know, we're pretty diverse there and maybe there's different practices by industry. But what we've seen is even with like a lot of companies having some form of return to office. What's happening is like the top of funnel, um, it, you know, interviews are still happening over video, um, almost like replacing the old video, uh, the, the old uh, phone screen. Right. So mm -hmm. so like people are doing the first interview over Zoom and then final interviews more and more, I think, are happening, you know, in in office or in, in person. Um, whereas, you know, six months into COVID, every stage was happening on video. N now it's really, uh, we, we are, I think, seeing a shift, which makes sense uh, to, to the later stage ones being more commonly in person. Yeah, no, that totally is. And one of the other things that's been happening in tech lately, um, you know, there, there's, there's the hiring part of the process, but a lot of tech companies are also insanely focused right now on retention because, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it pans out because there's been a lot of layoffs lately and that might end up cooling down the urge to hire. But for a while there with the quote unquote great resignation, just sort of this this constant churn in this flood. And there was this really difficult time keeping specialists and certain kinds of technologists like in the role. What we've been talking about here in terms of objective hiring and assessments and things like that, I mean, that's obviously for the onboard, the hiring and onboarding part of the process. Do you think some of the kind of the, the tools and lessons of this can be applied in any way to the retention part of the equation to keeping people happy, or is this more kind of focused on bringing people on board in the first place? Yeah. So, so for us, it's, it's part of the same picture, right? Like the, the challenge or the, the pain point that our customers come to us with is hiring and retention. They almost see it as like a, as a combined, combined thing. Right. And I'm of the view that the recent weakness in the tech industry, which we don't see on the talent acquisition front at all outside of tech, you know, it, it's, it's really localized in tech where, a lot of tech companies got a little ahead of themselves, maybe in retrospect, in terms of uh, hiring um, during, during COVID, during that ramp up. And there was some growth pulled forward. And now it's sort of correcting itself. Um, I, I view like I believe we're in a long term, meaning like decades long, like talent shortage environment. Um, and so retention is going to be incredibly important, not just within tech, but, you know, more globally across lots of different verticals. And so I think like one of the outcomes that our assessments predict in a pre-hire context is retention. And for some industries, it's like the main one they want to know about, right? Like um, certain industries that have really high turnover, I wouldn't include tech in that, but uh, are really intent on predicting, okay, is this person going to stay two years or nine months? And if they can predict who will stay two years, it's a, 
it's a it's a very big bottom line benefit for them, right? Yeah. Um, but within tech as well, um, and just more generally, I think also, you know, our assessments are now being used post hire as well, and specifically there. Um, the opportunity is around like using assessments to inform like growth and development or team team building. Um, so there's a big market for for kind of post hire uh, assessments as well that we're excited about. And one thing that we hear a lot about from our bigger enterprise customers that wasn't even a term I knew what it meant five years ago is is talent mobility, right? Where where big big customers, enterprise customers, we don't hear this from small businesses, but enterprise customers really have this notion that um, their talent ac acquisition efforts should not just be external, they should be internal as well, right? So if someone is um, in a role where maybe they don't see a path up in their organization or they're not sure they're committed to, to that path, um, but they have like transferable competencies and skills, like an assessment um, beginning in the pre-hire process can be a great way to kind of start constructing like a a multi-dimensional model of that person and that what skills they have, what, what traits they have, et cetera. Um, and then that can open up a lot of post-hire stuff as well. So, you know, um, great tech companies that have really good people that, that don't, aren't fulfilled or don't see a path up in their role, you know, maybe we can move them somewhere else in the organization where if you take a competency-based approach, there's a lot of overlap between what they're doing in the one role and what they'd need to leverage in the, in the second role. So that internal, that uh, talent mobility or internal mobility use case is something that really in the last two or three years in our bigger customers, we're hearing a lot about. And the idea is there, um, you know, some some big companies like Workday are, are working on this as well, where if you can sort of create like a skills map of a person, um, that can open up a lot of things post-hire in terms of development and, and mobility. It almost sounds like it's it's and correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like it's almost trying to quantify cultural fit as well to a certain extent, like not just skills mapping, but also align like in the individual's alignment with the organization and but doing it in a way that would be objective and scientific. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we tend to get a little nervous when our customers talk about cultural fit yeah. um, because, you know, it can mean almost anything. And and our approach is, uh, and I think it does mean different things to different people, like it's certainly legitimate in the pre-hire process to screen out people that you think are in any way, shape or form like toxic or, or you know, would be would be counterproductive to um, to your cultural values. On the other hand, like I view it a little bit like cultural fit a little bit as the um, as the sort of thing you hear a lot about during election season, like, would you like to have a beer with this person who's exactly. running for president, right? Yeah. And uh, and for me, it's like, well, you know, maybe we should be more focused on whether they're qualified to run the free world, you know, <laughs> rather than, you know, how much fun uh, they would be to, you know, uh, sit down and have a beer with. Yeah. So I think like the, 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 the concept that we like to talk to um, our customers about, because a lot of our customers are sort of using specifically personality assessments as a way to sort of gain like a cultural profile of someone. But I think like for us, the way we like to think about it is, is this person going to add to your culture? Are they going to bring something something new? And it, are they additive to a culture rather than subtractive? Um, more so than just like cultural fit. But that's just our, <laughs> that's maybe our particular bias, right? No, I mean, it's it's a complicated thing because I mean, you, especially in tech, a lot, you know, you, you've got the technical skills and well, but, you know, as you said, you want people to kind of fit in the organization. You want them to be happy. You want them to stick around. And so there's, there's also kind of 
maybe a little bit of a gut call there as well, like on, on the part of the, the hiring manager. Although, I mean, if you have, an, I imagine also with an experienced hiring manager, I mean, hopefully it almost becomes like a scientific thing where, you know, after a while you can determine, okay, this person's going to fit because yeah. they, you know, they're in line with other things that we've seen before. Um, That's right. I think like for us, it's really interesting. You mentioned that because our approach is obviously we're, you know, big on using data and, and, and taking this evidence-based approach, but for us, like, it's very much still a human-centered process, right? And and the HR person or the hiring manager, whoever's doing the talent acquisition process, the recruiter, um, we're not trying to replace their decision-making solely with algorithms, right? We, we really are about like informing them with more data points, um, but still recognizing that in the end, like HR is, you know, you're, you're probably not better off taking the human out of it altogether. So it's really about like arming the human with, data-driven tools so they can be more, more confident, maybe especially in like a labor shortage environment, if they're, you know, not relying on these things they used to rely on pretty comfortable, like comfortably like degree requirements, which are, you know, relatively weak signal, really mm -hmm. kind of de-risking that process if they're trying to look at new talent pools, that kind of thing, and giving them confidence that, oh, this person has the building blocks of, of, of what I need, like the, the elements of what I need. Um, but it's not about like, automating hiring decisions altogether. So, so I, I definitely um, feel what you were saying there. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, that being a weak signal because a lot of companies like big companies like IBM and, and Apple and so on have been sort of de-emphasizing, it feels like they've been de-emphasizing kind of the, the formal degree part of the CV in favor of, and that would put more, I imagine that puts more emphasis on things like this. Like if the degree is not a part of it, then you absolutely must have a scientific assessment of them because- yeah, you need, exactly. you need stronger signals. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what's behind the whole um, skills-based hiring movement, which is which is really becoming a movement. Like I, I remember at the last HR technology conference I went, it was it was everywhere. You know, skills-based hiring, and for us, that's that's a great sign. I mean, I think we've uh, some of the main themes of skills-based hiring are things we've been talking about for a while. Which um, degree requirements is a big one, right? Where um, you know, it's just kind of a little bit of a lazy approach to sort of uh, getting a proxy for employability. I mean, you know, certainly there's value in, in going to college and we're big on that. I hope my kids go to college, right? But um, screening 60, what is it in the US? I think 62% of people don't have a bachelor's degree. Screening out 62% of people at the top of the process, when you're not very confident that that degree is a good predictor of success in that particular role, is just, um, it just doesn't work in this environment. You know, you're, you're just uh, kind of taking a whole giant talent pool and sort of forgetting about it before you've even looked at them really. Um, so I think, it, you know, it's, and, and it's been shown that educational attainment is, um, is a signal, but it's a pretty weak one when you compare it to other things. So, you know, having it as the gatekeeper for employment is problematic. And I think that's what, um, that's one of the things that skills-based hiring is, is such a reaction to. What I mean, if if these are kind of weaker signals on that range, then then what 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 do you consider like the stronger backslash strongest possible signal? Like what's what's on the what's on the other side of it? Yeah, so I mean, all the research from like decades of organizational psychology is is pretty much um, unanimous on what works. Um, and you know, it's going to sound like very unsurprising, but things like critical thinking and problem solving and work ethic, right? These, these won't be like groundbreaking things. Um, but like, if you can assess those types of things, if you can measure or evaluate those types of things, um, they translate to success across so many roles. 
Um, you know, one of the another thing that's relatively a weaker signal is is the amount of experience you have a field in a field, right? Now that's certainly um, there's certainly exceptions to that, right? No one wants like an inexperienced brain surgeon operating on them, or or like a you know inexperienced unemployment lawyer or employment lawyer or whatever. So there yeah. are like domain expertise, you know, advantages in certain fields, and 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 so. But if you look at like the the positions we hire for at scale. Um, those things I just mentioned tend to be better predictors long-term. So things like, you know, customer success, sales, um, even software engineering, where there's a lot of evidence that, yes, it's a, it's a good thing to know certain languages that you're going to be using. But if you look at the arc of a software engineer's career, um, you're better off uh, assessing whether he or she has those great learning abilities, those great critical thinking, problem-solving abilities, because... Um, longer term, those those tend to correlate with being able to learn any new language. And the the churn in languages, in, in programming languages, is so accelerated that, um, you know, what you really want, if, you, if you're looking at even a five-year timeline, is is a great learner, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, we, we had a moment at our own company a couple of years ago when we did a big relaunch of the, um, of our product. And we, this was four or five years ago, we the time we're designing in React, and we were joking that the ten-person engineering team that had launched this new product, none of them knew React when we'd hired them, right? Uh, because it was—I I think it barely existed. It was just so, something inside of Facebook at the time, right? So, yeah. um, so it's—it's it's funny that if you hire great engineers, they're going to learn new languages at at a good velocity. Yeah, that that makes I mean that makes obviously total sense. Um, how, I mean, there's been a lot of buzz in some way about chat GPT and things like that. And there's a, a lot of hype bound up in it, obviously. But um, how is automation and AI, I mean, impacting objective assessments and the whole interview process? I mean, is this something that, you know, I mean, obviously tools aside and platforms aside, is, is this still going to remain human driven? Are we looking at a future where AI is doing the initial round of interviews completely? I mean, where, where do you think that's going? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and it's a complicated one in the talent acquisition space, right? Like, I think I think some of the cool um, uses of of ML and AI in um, in hiring are pretty uncontroversial, right? Like, if you think about like top of funnel stuff, like just automating scheduling and um, you know, sort of doing some basic qualification through chatbots of of uh, candidates based on pretty uncontroversial things like that, that can just really save a ton of time for recruiters. And, um, and, and with the amount of applicants, even in this economy, like it's so easy to apply for jobs that the volume, like the funnel is pretty steep, right? Like it's a pretty wide shaped triangle. So, yeah. so tools that can like drive automation at that stage are, 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 are doing great in the marketplace. And I think, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty much a slam dunk where I get more nervous is, using AI to inform a pretty high stakes decision without being really careful about, um, you know, knowing what's behind that AI and how it works. And and when it doesn't work, you know, you kind of land on the, on the front page of the Washington Post for the wrong reasons. Right. So, so we're very uh, careful in our use of, uh, of that technology. I think what we're excited about is that um, specifically, like you can use that AI to really make an uh, assessment much more efficient, for example. Um, like you can turn a 15-minute assessment maybe into an eight-minute assessment without compromising the, the quality of the signal at all, which is great. Um, in structured interviewing, you can do pattern recognition stuff that does give um, the hiring manager or the person who's like uh, 
reviewing, let's say, uh, like we have an asynchronous video interviewing product that's already live in the market. So that's that's just one way, right, where a person is, um, you know, answering three questions mm-hmm. or something about why they want to work for the company. Yeah. And you can do some pretty cool stuff maybe with natural language language processing. We haven't incorporated that into our product yet, but, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, but again, where I get nervous is where um, AI that is pretty black box is making a, a selection, a go, no go decision that, that I think is sometimes scientifically problematic and, and, and sometimes ethically problematic. Um, so I think like, we, we prefer the concept of like glass box algorithms, right? Like we're, when we're assessing someone, we feel like people should have a, at least a pretty good idea of what, how they're being measured, how they're being judged, right? And not be guessing whether they're supposed to smile or use big words or, you know, in a, in a video interview. So, so for us, like that transparency element, it should be, um, should be pretty um, central. I love I love that term glass box. Yesterday I was reading this interview by Stephen Wolfram, who's the creator yeah, of Wolfram yeah. for Mathematica and so on. And it's this twenty thousand word essay, and it basically yes. boils down to um, he's like and finally like one of the smartest human beings on planet. He's like I don't know. Like that's he's so like funny you mentioned that because one of our investors sent me that article, and uh, I, I have to admit I started it this weekend, but not did not get through it. It's it's pretty uh, it's pretty deep, but it, it breaks yeah. it down, yeah, pretty simply. But yeah, at a certain point, I mean, it starts it starts to lose me, and you know, kind of part. But it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And that's it, folks. Even under ideal circumstances, hiring is a tricky and stressful process for pretty much everybody involved. So it's interesting to talk to people like Josh who are trying to revolutionize the process. Here are some key takeaways from our discussion. First, any company can set up a hiring process that minimizes the potential for bias, especially if they focus on a structured and rigorous process based around the job's objective aspects. For example, the tools and languages involved in software engineering. Quantifiable assessments and an evidence-based approach can help organizations hire the most effective talent. Second, even though offices are opening back up, many organizations have embraced the idea of doing at least some hiring interviews via video. As Josh explained, Many are doing the initial interview over Zoom, then moving in-person for final interviews. For managers and tech professionals, that means maintaining and perfecting both your video and your in-person interviewing skills. Third, there's a growing movement behind using assessments to inform growth, development, and team building. If you're a manager and you're concerned about your team's morale, consider an assessment-based approach to evaluating their happiness and their willingness to leave. So that's it, and we'll see you next time. And remember, DICE is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles, and for technology professionals, the best place to grow your career.